Hey everyone, my name is Dr. Dolores Tarver. I'm a licensed psychologist and it is time for the tea. Tea time with Dr. Tarver is a wellness-based podcast. It is not intended to be a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health provider. Welcome back everyone to our November episodes. As you all know, November is National Caregivers Month. And so we are doing our best to make sure that we're caregiving for ourselves this month as opposed to caregiving for others. So we have been talking about breast cancer, election anxiety. Today, you're going to be very excited as we talk about ABCs, 123s, and STIs, reducing our RISKS. And then we're going to close out the month by talking about mental health and our veterans. So you all know if you have questions or comments, just go ahead and drop them in the chat. Invite friends to come on over and we're going to get go ahead and get started. I am so very excited to introduce to you all Dr. Ashley Hill. Dr. Hill is an assistant professor of epidemiology in the Department of Epidemiology School of Public Health at the University of Pittsburgh. As a reproductive epidemiologist, her research aims to reduce disparities in sexually transmitted infections, STIs, and adverse reproductive outcomes for young people. In addition to her primary research program, Dr. Hill has an epidemiology, epidem, you know what, field experience leading contact tracing as a disease intervention specialist and public health associate with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. She provided support for COVID-19 response efforts in both Pennsylvania and Georgia. Dr. Hill is especially proud of her community-engaged work and currently serves on several local communities in Pittsburgh, including the Health and Wellness Work Group of the Black Girls Equity Alliance and the Community Health Team of the Black Equity Coalition. She is a member of the Executive Leadership Team of Cure Violence Columbus, a community violence prevention initiative. She received her BS from Spelman College, her Master's of Public Health from Georgia Southern University, and her Doctorate in Public Health from Texas A&M University School of Public Health. You all excuse that I cannot get my words out tonight. We would like to welcome to our show, Dr. Ashley Hill. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Dr. Tarver. I, I Absolutely. Listen, I understand. It's, it's been a day, a week, a month, a year, right? Like <laughs> All of that. Our internet has been out most of the day. And I'm like, okay, girl, can do you know how to phonics? Do you know how to pronounce words anymore? You practiced this before you got on, but it's all good. We're going to roll on because that is what we do. So we've got a lot to get to. I want to go ahead and get started. Now, a lot of people, if you're like me, you probably grew up hearing the term STDs as opposed to STIs. So Dr. Hill, can you explain to our audience, what is an STI? Absolutely. So we just had a shift in terminology that was a little bit more accurate to um, the pathogen itself. So sexually transmitted diseases and sexually transmitted infections are really can be used synonymously or interchangeably. But the, um, the change to infection really just highlights the fact that there is a viral or bacterial pathogen that is causing or could potentially cause disease, um, which means that you have, you know, prolonged um, effects or impacts that can have any specific outcomes related to your um, reproductive health um, or, you know, discomfort, general um, ability and kind of your general ability to have a high quality of life. So that was really sort of the shift in terminology in relationship to that, but we're still talking about the same things. 
Okay. And I think that's very helpful for people to understand because a lot of times people are like, what is an STI? And we get embarrassed, right? We don't want to ask questions because we don't look un want to look uninformed. So I think it's important for people to be able to understand that. So thank you so much. Now, in your bio, too, you mentioned higher risk factors. So I want to get into, are there higher risks for certain groups when it comes to STIs? For example, our adolescents or young adults or our older adults? or males versus females, are there differences in terms of those risk factors and, and who may be at more risk in those particular groups? Yeah, so the conversation around risk is really interesting, kind of to think about what places individuals at risk. Um, and so when you talk about adolescents, you're talking about, you know, young people who are sort of coming into their own identities, understanding and exploring their bodies. And so oftentimes they may not have all of the right tools, the information, the questions to ask, and really sort of know how to engage in healthy sexuality or practices. And so, of course, not having that knowledge would place them at risk potentially. Um, but I don't like to say that any potential group is at higher risk because I think ultimately risk has a lot to do with your access to resources. Risk has a lot to do with, you know, the historical elements of what has kind of led us to disparities. Um, risk has a lot to do with more than just the individual. So there are elements to, you know, our society, to our environments that may place us at risk. Um, but people in and of themselves are not risky. Thank you so much for that lovely segue. So let us talk about what are some factors that do put us at risk for sexually transmitted infections? Yeah, absolutely. So some of the, the factors that, you know, can increase the likelihood of getting an STI would be things like having um, sex that is condomless. So meaning you're not using any sort of protective mechanisms or barriers um, between skin to, to skin contact. Um, also, just sort of knowing what, you know, sex is. So when we talk about um, what sexually transmitted infections can be and how they can come, it's through anal, vaginal, or oral sex. And so any element of sexual contact, um, things that are done for pleasure that are, you know, in, engaging with another individual can potentially put you at um, risk for exposure to uh, a, a person that might have an STI as well. So those are, are, are kind of the, the primary factors that really drive what can happen in, in sort of transmitting um, infections and pathogens. So I'm glad you mentioned the oral sex piece because I do think a lot of people feel like they're safe when they're having oral sex, that they're not having the same type of risk factors that they might be having with um, vaginal intercourse or anal intercourse. Um, so I, I heard you say, our risk factors are still present if it's oral sex as well. Yeah, absolutely. We're actually seeing really concerning increases in oral cancers, especially around um, pathogens related to uh, human papillomavirus or HPV. So that's a, um, a cancer-related pathogen that we now do have a vaccine for. But uh, the, the cancers related to um, HPV have been on the rise in the past few years. Uh, and so oral sex is one of the ways that that could be potentially transmitted. Um, so it's really important to think about, you know, having conversations with your partners about barrier protection, um, about thinking about, you know, testing frequently. If you do have um, changes in partners, every time you have a new partner, definitely screen. Um, and also being able to just have open and honest conversations about um, our, our autonomy, our, you know, pleasure overall, but also sort of the things that are working and not working in, you know, our, our partnerships. I think all sort of derive the ability to normalize 
and also, you know, really destigmatize de some of what we know can kind of become a barrier when you're talking about things like this. Do you have any idea following up on the HPV? Because I know that is um, now we have a vaccine that we're administering to our young people. Um, what are some of the factors that are maybe behind that rise in risk for HPV or the incidences of HPV? Yeah, so I, I mean, nationally, we've had a really hard time being able to get a true sense of the prevalence or like the number of people that have HPV or how it's in circulation. Um, and so that I think has driven a lot of the impetus to be able to vaccinate because we do have an effective vaccine that does prevent um, cancer. It's, it's relatively uh, highly effective at preventing any sort of um, cancer-related outcomes or um, illness when a person might actually, you know, transmit or get um, in contact with HPV. So it's important for us to be able to understand sort of the, the mechanisms behind that. Obviously, we've talked a lot about vaccination in the past few years with COVID, but I think the, the introduction of these types of um, preventive measures because of the fact that as far as disease control, we don't really have a good grasp on how many people have HPV. Um, our estimations are somewhere in the 90% of adults is, is sort of what we're speculating um, have or have ever had HPV. And so it's one of those very, very common um, it, pathogens that can be passed. Uh, and, and, you know, ultimately you're talking about people who are in relatively low risk um, situations. And, and so uh, it's just really important to sort of understand sometimes these things can also um, be transmitted with no symptoms. And so you may, you know, have something or be in contact with someone, especially like HPV, that really doesn't show up in any specific way, um, but could very much be causing you to have um, adverse outcomes later on in life, especially cancer-related outcomes. So let's segue into that piece, which are what are some of the potential other um, medical complications that could come along with contracting a sexually transmitted infection? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of the work that I do specifically looks at um, infections during pregnancy. And so some of the things that we've found, um, and particularly because this young adult stage, this adolescent stage, um, those uh, young people are kind of in this vulnerable space where they're learning about themselves. And so we, we kind of talked about that a little bit. Um, but being having any sort of unprotected sex obviously can lead to pregnancy. It can lead to infection. It can lead to sort of, you know, lots of other outcomes, be that intentional or unintended. Um, and so some of the, the work that I've done has really looked around what are some of the relationships between infection during pregnancy and pregnancy-related outcomes. And so we found that infection has been uh, related to events like preterm births, so that means that your baby is delivered too soon um, and not intentionally, uh, related to preeclampsia, which is like a hypertensive disorder. Um, it's also been related to gestational diabetes, which is really interesting, and so still kind of looking into what the mechanisms and the pathogenesis behind that is. Um, but what we do know is that having an infection during your pregnancy can really alter your immune response, and that has a lot of implications for when you, you know, go into labor, what are some of the other complications um, that could potentially impact the health of the mother and the baby. So that's sort of one piece. Okay. Um, in non-pregnant populations, there are things like, in women specifically, um, pelvic inflammatory disease, which can really kind of impact 
your reproductive function. It can have um, a pretty big impact on inflammation in um, your uterus and your fallopian tubes. And so it can kind of prevent you from actually becoming pregnant if you would like to. Um, and then in men, you see things like um, various like discomforts, lots of things like discharge, you know, there could be um, potential um, inflammation as well. And so a lot of these things as far as inflammation has a relationship to um, infertility um, and, you know, again, can really impede later in life when people are intending to become pregnant or intending to reproduce can really have a lot of impacts um, later on. And so that's really where we see a lot of the, um, the specific outcomes that we want to avert. Um, but also, again, like I said, we're really paying a lot of attention to um, some of the pregnancy-related outcomes because we are seeing not only the, the rates of STIs continuing to increase um, in this reproductive age, but also that we're seeing a, a lot of connections to pregnancy outcomes that we want to avoid. Um, and particularly, you know, when we're talking about um, Black populations, we really want to do everything we can to reduce the burden of, you know, these maternal mortality and morbidity outcomes because we know that that's a huge problem right now. Absolutely. I, and and I, uh, uh, one question that I have is, are you automatically tested for sexually, in, sexually transmitted infections when you are pregnant? So there is a, um, a testing recommendation and sort of mandate for pregnant women. So once you come in um, and you are kind of triaged for your prenatal care, at some point during your first trimester, you are supposed to be screened for STIs. Um, and it varies, obviously, uh, by your provider, by, you know, your health system, by your insurance status, you know, who's paying for it with healthcare comes down to a lot of what people get offered, um, which is awful, but kind of the reality at this stage. Uh, so the recommendation is, yeah, that every pregnant woman is screened for, for all, you know, kind of prevalent STIs. Um, and that there is a treatment plan and that there's follow-up screening and there's also sort of a uh, um, uh, encounter around being able to talk to them about their partners and being able to reduce their risk of recurrent infection. Um, so that is currently one of the, the guiding practices for um, obstetricians and gynecologists to be able to do that. Um, but it does vary and we see that a lot in medical records about whether or not women are actually offered screening um, and then when they are screened, if there is a positive, that they actually get the treatment and confirm that they're no longer um, infected as well. And I imagine this is where some of the dis disparities become greater. So you mentioned insurance, for example. Like, is my insurance going to pay for this or am I going to have to pay out of pocket for this? Does my Yeah, my yeah, provider so, asked me. I mean, yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. So when we're talking about kind of that concept of risk, I, I'm very much sort of, I, I come to the questions that I ask with this notion in this framework around understanding what people's social determinants are. So that's kind of the things that impact them and their ability to, you know, effectively live and work and play and, you know, the different things that we all kind of as humans need to have access to. All of those things vary based on how society has assigned our importance and whether that be on our race or our gender or our gender identity expression. But there's so many ways that we can be um, prevented from getting what we need, even though we're doing everything as an individual or as a community that we can, you know, to be able to get and obtain those goals. Um, and so insurance status is certainly one of those things that can very much be sort of operationalized by your employment status. 
um, by your income, by all of these other things that really have nothing to do with your health that will have a direct impact on your ability to get health resources. Absolutely. Like I just, I think about um, having to get an ultrasound uh, after having a birth control method that just, just didn't seem like it was working for me. But of course, everybody wants to check. Well, let's just make sure it's placed right. Um, I, that was $300 out of pocket for that ultrasound. Um, and so I can only imagine, like, um, and I, you know, consider myself to have uh, middle level insurance. I don't think much insurance is real great. Um, but yeah, I mean, people being able to afford like, hey, if insurance doesn't pay for this and you need some additional things, like, is that going to be preventative? And the answer is yes, because if somebody would have told me, hey, it'd be $300 for the ultrasound, I probably would have thought about it. I've done it, but I'd have thought about it. Um, yeah. But I was in the position to be able to think about it, whereas we have some people who are not in a position um, to be able to even consider that. Absolutely. And so I think that all of those things come into play when we talk about, you know, not only, you know, our, our kind of sexual health, but, mm -hmm. but our overall health and our kind of ideas around how people can change behaviors or not. And so I think a lot of, um, a lot of my work and sort of where the field is going is kind of removing this burden that people need to be responsible for, you know, things that really like they have not caused the problem. Mm -hmm. um, and so really thinking about what are some of these systems level kind of more systemic impacts on people's health, be that, you know, perinatal health, be that reproductive health, be that sexual health. Um, and, and really kind of across the gamut, all forms of health. But we know really now that we have been able to document these very, you know, traumatic and embodied experiences that we as minorities in the United States mm -hmm. have um, that have direct impacts on our ability to achieve optimal health and our ability to have, you know, long lifespans and, and to really kind of have a high quality of life. And so to really capture and understand what those things are at a high level, at a systems level, at a, at a governmental level, as an infrastructure level, and really remove the burden from individuals because people are not making themselves sick. You know, I mean, right. nobody's, nobody's doing anything intentionally because mm -hmm. everybody has the same goal, you know, to be able to live long and, and to live well. And so um, a lot of, you know, I would say, thankfully, our, our field is really sort of transitioning to really look at that sort of from a more high level um, and remove a lot of that responsibility and burden that honestly, you know, our, our people did not cause. Right. That's a nice segue, too, into testing, right? So we, you know, our ability to access testing, you mentioned, hey, if one, of the, one of the recommendations for um, safe sex practices is to get testing after um, a partner and before a new partner. Uh, and so talk a little bit about, um, you know, the who, wins, where's, like, so in terms of being, people being able to access testing, what are some of the options that they have? So oftentimes local resources um, are typically funneled through the health departments. And I know that there's, you know, there's a lot of stigma around mm -hmm. engaging health department services. Um, but ultimately, your first, you know, pass, especially if you're, depending on your insurance status or what, you know, your various options are as far as being able to have somebody else pay for that, and you don't have to pay for that. Um, typically, the, the local public health infrastructure and resources are going to be able to offer um, screening for, you know, all STIs, also, you know, infectious diseases broadly. So they'll screen for tuberculosis, they'll screen for, you know, other things that are really important to have a sense of in your community and population. Um, and so you can go and engage those resources. And oftentimes, 
um, they'll be at low or you know no cost to the individual because we do have infrastructures that come from the federal government to allow for um, sort of surveillance of those different pathogens. Um, and so that's usually the first line of, of any sort of recommendation. Um, and then when you do have uh, insurance, you're usually able to go to, you know, a primary care provider. Um, there are, you know, clinics or um, various places, I think, that will also offer services. Um, there are um, private resources, places like a Planned Parenthood. And I know we have, we're in varying places. I'm in mm -hmm. Pennsylvania. And, you know, I know things have kind of shifted a lot with you know, the yeah. landscape around reproductive rights and justice. Yeah. And so a lot of us mm -hmm. are trying to work very diligently to mm -hmm. make sure that people still have access, but, you know, the landscape is changing. And so I think it's it's really important um, to engage our local public health to make sure that they are doing what they can to continue to uplift the organizations and the agencies that can provide care, comprehensive care, accurate mm -hmm. care, you know, and, and care that's free of coercion because all of that is very important. Um, and, and really being able to kind of allow for, you know, our public health agencies, especially locally, because a lot of times they have a little bit more flexibility um, to, to kind of, you know, guide some of, of that directionality. I want you to speak for a moment on the uh, free of coercion, because I think that uh, as you're talking about kind of educating people. So like, hey, there's some stuff that you don't need to have to be responsible for, but I need to know. Um, so talk a little bit about yeah, so you know it's really cool. Recently, I, I gave a lecture in um, in a reproductive class and just kind of talked about the definition, like the World Health Organization's definition of sexual and reproductive health, um, has this kind of phrase in there that says, you know, sexual health should be pleasurable, it should be safe, it should be free of discrimination, of violence, of coercion, um, and so really, you should be in a space where when you're engaging not only in sort of health resources, but also just with your partners, that all of these things should be taken into consideration. And so many times the things that really kind of create vulnerabilities are these intersections of, you know, being in a space where you don't have reproductive autonomy, where, you know, someone is really coercing you into doing things that you may not have given consideration to or actually might not want. Um, and that can also kind of mirror into the healthcare setting, um, which is really what we're seeing kind of in a political landscape. And so, you know, I personally believe that everybody should be able to make their own choices. They should have the information that they need to make those choices. But we all are, you know, independent beings and we should have the, uh, the option to choose what it is that we want for ourselves be that, you know, our reproductive autonomy or, you know, what else, whatever. If, if I'm having a heart attack, I want you to save me. I don't need it to be a political decision. Um, and so, you know, at the end of the day, I think that all of those elements are really important. And I think that that's something that, broadly speaking, we don't get a chance to really understand that, you know, all of your health related needs should be free of coercion, should be free of violence, should be free of discrimination, and should be helpful and pleasurable to you. It shouldn't be, you know, a huge burden to be able to go and engage these resources. And, you know, I'm really hoping that we kind of as a, um, as a, as a system are able to really move towards uplifting that more and really making sure that these are the experiences that people are having. And I'm so glad you said that. I, I will never forget an experience, uh, in undergrad going to ask for um, STI testing with my annual exam and being made to feel shame. 
about that I'm asking for testing for sexually transmitted infections or if just because I'm in a long-term partnership with someone, then a provider say, well, you don't need to get testing. I should be able to get testing if I want to get testing. Um, and so I think a lot of times you are um, forced into things or you feel compelled, I'll say it that way. You feel compelled to make a choice that maybe doesn't feel like the choice that you would like to make because you have someone who is inserting their opinions, if you will. Um, and often because you are a provider and we tend to take uh, our provider's words as law, um, that it supersedes our own feelings, our own thoughts, our own judgment, uh, because they may say something that goes against maybe what, what we requested or our concerns that are dismissed um, or minimized. Yeah, absolutely. And I think all of that is so incredibly impactful in your desire to to re-engage your desire to ask questions your you know feelings to be able to advocate for yourself and I think in any sort of situation where we are not necessarily the expert um, but we have to come to it and know that it's like okay I have to prepare myself to go in and like stick to what I'm asking for and you know make my make sure I'm heard and all of those mm -hmm. things it's, it's really difficult um, and so you know I can say that I I have seen from the, the clinical side of things, that there really is a desire and an effort to, to make some progress on that, to really sort of deconstruct and really move out of the way some of the, the kind of old ideas that have consistently been held that you just go to your appointment and you do what they tell you to do and you leave. Um, we're really moving away from that because we see that it doesn't work and it actually like ends in people losing their lives. Um, and so it's so important, not only for us to feel empowered and we can't do that ourselves. We have to have other people empower us, um, but also to know that you can have advocates, you know, with you and that there can be people who support you um, in those spaces. And we always know that sometimes it's better to have somebody with you to be able Absolutely. to on your behalf. Mm -hmm. um, and, and all of us don't have that. Again, I'm kind of speaking from a place of privilege in that sense, in the sense that you might be able to have a trusted person to come along with you and say, you know, absolutely not. This person needs this thing. We know that, you know, they're offered these things and they have their rights. And, you know, so it's just important for us to be in a space of, of really being able to educate ourselves a little bit more. Um, I think we, we see that across the board from both the political and the judicial and health landscapes. It's just, it's important because nobody's going to, you know, advocate for us unless we advocate for ourselves and we advocate for each other. Um, but I am really encouraged that, you know, I think that the, the medical kind of clinical profession is really looking for people to, you know, ask their questions. They're trying to find ways to allow people, you know, to have more time to be able to really build trust because, you know, they, they have their metrics and the things that they have to do in their 10 or 15 minutes. Um, but at the end of the day that we know that trust building is extremely important um, when it comes to any sort of, you know, person to person engagement. And that that really opens the door for us to be able to, you know, address real issues and real problems and make sure that people are getting the care that they need. I appreciate so much you talking about having that advocacy because I, I do feel like sometimes we're intimidated. You go in, um, you know, can you imagine uh, my, my mother tells the story. Um, so all these people are deceased now, so they probably turning over um, in their ashes. But um, my mother tells the story of going with my my grandmother uh, to an appointment to get tested for an STI when she was uh, older. 
and she was so embarrassed and so ashamed. And when the provider came out, um, they were like looking at my mom, like, oh, okay, you're here to get tested. And she was like, no, actually, she's here to get tested. But my grandmother would not have been able to go to this appointment um, at her age, at that point in her life, without my mother saying, hey, I'll go with you. Um, so you don't have to navigate it on your own. You don't have to figure it out. And you're absolutely right about that. Not everyone is in a position where they have safe, loving, trusting people to go with who aren't going to share their information and make them feel ashamed, but who's just going to say, hey, I'm going to walk with you in this so you don't have to be by yourself. But that does lead me to this other um, notion of like just sometimes it's hard for us to communicate in general about when we're talking even to potential partners mentioned going to the, uh, I used to tell people, hey, make that your first date. Go on over to this health department and get this testing together. Um, but it can be very difficult for us to even, like you said, hey, condomless sex. Hey, I need for you to put a condom on. Um, or having these conversations ahead of time, uh, women have been made to feel um, as if there is something um, uh, fast, as the season saying say, about you bringing up these kind of things with people. So can you talk about why it can be difficult for us to communicate to partners about being safe in our sexual practices? Yeah, I mean, our society has really just kind of stigmatized sex, which is really interesting because it's something that everybody does. It's expected of you in certain relationships. I mean, so even if you were sort of, you know, raised in more traditional or religious settings, I mean, the idea is that you're supposed to go, you know, marry somebody and produce. So it's just really interesting to, to kind of be in a space where um, there are so many expectations that are unspoken around your sexual health, around your expectations and relationships. Um, but we have all of this, like, it can't be discussed and we're so awkward with it. And so I, I really appreciate it. I think one of my first experiences kind of coming into this world was really in undergrad. And I kind of had a very similar, you know, a kind of encounter where I was like, okay, I was really interested in getting involved with like the public health organization. And at the time, they were really supported by some of the HIV advocates in Atlanta. And so, you know, I, I'm, this is sort of like the 2008, 2010 time, pre-exposure prophylaxis is just becoming a thing. There's a lot of, um, there are a lot of disparities in Black women having HIV. So it was just really kind of a prominent time um, in that area specifically and really kind of wanting to understand how to better support and really destigmatize conversations around sex, but also because HIV was such a like, huge thing at the time. And it was it was really something that was on everybody's mind and kind of in the conversation. So that for me was like, okay, well, if we can talk about this, but we're not supposed to talk about this, then how do we like start these conversations? So the the organization that I interned with at the time, their, their sister love um, in Atlanta, they're an HIV, you know, advocacy organization. They do a lot of um, work with advocating for and making sure that women who are HIV positive have resources. Um, but they also would do these healthy love parties. And that literally was just like, it was basically a sex toy party, but they were kind of talking you through, you know, how to do some of these things. Like we're going to practice talking to each other and practice how you might want to like, you know, introduce something with a partner, practice putting on a condom, like all of these things that for the most part, people maybe get in a health class once, maybe, but otherwise, you know, you don't really get any real instruction or engagement around that. So I have been um, really pleased to see in just common medium lately that there's been more documentaries and conversation around, you know, sex and sexuality, 
around being able to have kind of these like awkward conversations um, around being able to just think about what is helpful and important to you in a partnership. What are you looking for individually? Um, what do you want to get out of it? And then also thinking about why that would be important for you to communicate and sort of in any other um, engagement that we have, you know, when I, I go to the grocery store, I want to buy eggs, like, so I gotta say something, you know what I mean? Or, you know, even if I'm self-checking out, it has to be noted. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, being able to just think about it as communication, we all have to communicate, we all have to make sure that we express our desires, um, the things that give us pleasure, the things that don't, you know, the things that um, are what we want out of this encounter, or this engagement. And so I think being able to do that is really an empowering thing. And it does feel a little awkward in the beginning. Um, but I would say, I think the more, you know, anybody practices and does it, the more it actually improves your experience. Um, and the more you're able to feel more empowered about just having control of your health and having control of the situation and knowing what's right for you and what isn't. Um, and being able to really kind of think about that and, and think about it beyond sort of just the context of, you know, uh, an infection or not. But, you know, really, is this a safe situation for you? Yes. Is this a, a situation that's free of coercion? Is this a situation that is not going to lead to violence? Is this a situation where, you know, at any point you can say, I don't want this or I want something different and it's okay. Um, so all of those things, I think, come with communication, being able to assess those things come with communication and, you know, being able to articulate your needs, I think, is a, is a very important thing for, you know, all of us as humans to be able to do. Absolutely. And I'm very struck by your experience. Like, hey, I was a young adult before, you know, I got some exposure to these things because I do think that we need to talk to our young people, and I know you well know this too, that we need to talk to our young people ahead of time. Um, shout out to um, the 8th Episcopal District of the AME Church, uh, who, when we were younger, actually had workshops for us at YPD meetings, um, where we learned how to put on condoms, where we learned to be able to talk about, no, and that's not comfortable for me. And right, instead of us, um, getting, like you said, in some of these very rigid perspectives, like let's have realistic conversations about, let me prepare you. I can still talk to you about all of the other things you said, the emotional parts that come along with just being in relationships with people. Do I even know you're safe? Do I know that you're going to be able to hear me when I express things to you, right? We need to be doing all of that work instead of us saying to our children, hey, um, abstinence, wait until and um, nothing against programs that emphasize abstinence, but I also think it's a both and situation where we do talk to our young people. So the first time they are exposed into a situation is not when they're having to try to figure all that out. Oh, absolutely. And honestly, it is, it's, for me, it's so encouraging to hear that there are, you know, like religious environments that are really thinking about this, because a lot of the time, you know, as children growing up in the South, we spend a lot of time at church, you know what I mean? There's a lot of things that happen and you, whether or not your ability to kind of have conversations about what's going on, about really being able to have trusted adults in your space that can say, not only are they, you know, people who are not going to lead you astray or not going to, you know, put you in vulnerable situations, but also that can really kind of think through and talk about what is a healthy relationship. Because if we're if we're being honest, we're really talking about healthy relationships. We're talking yes. about being able to, you know, engage in 
in partnership, engage in developing and growing relationships, be they romantic or not. You're talking about being able to just develop as you know, an adult and, and nobody teaches us that unless they teach us that and, and trying to expect people to come into that and just know what to do. It's like you turn 18 and you're supposed to figure it out. Like we know that that's not the case. Absolutely not. Um, so being able to have these types of environments where people are, you know, talking to you about just generally, what does it look like to be in a, a relationship that's meaningful to you? Yes. To be, you know, in a partnership that is affirming to you and, and all of that's different for everybody. Um, but we have to know that that's what sort of the expectations are and, and give our youth the opportunity to be able to get into that um, in ways that are safe for them in ways that they really know what to expect when, you know, they are interested in pursuing that. Yes, absolutely. Because first know thyself, right? Like I need to understand me. I need to understand uh, what type of communication works well for me. I need to understand um, the signs, right, of people being able to receive that. Because sometimes there's flags and we don't necessarily know to look for them. Um, oh, you don't listen to me with a lot of other stuff. So you're probably not going to listen to me with this sexual boundary I'm trying to set with you. Um, or you put me in unsafe situations when it wasn't related to any kind of sexual relationship. So you're likely going to put me in unsafe situation situations when it comes to sexual relationships. So like you said, being able to understand oneself in relation to others and being able to understand first before I even go into it, what's important for me so that coercion piece doesn't happen. So I don't get with you and then change my mind because I feel like I need to do that in order for me to be in this relationship with you as opposed to recognizing like, no, actually the choice in that situation is not to be in a relationship with you and to be around people who can love me in the way that I deserve to be loved. Um, so I, you know, I, I'm very aware we've talked a lot about, um, testing and communication and, um, some of the complications of sexually transmitted infections. It may be actually helpful for us to talk about what are the signs and symptoms of an STI? How does a person, cause you mentioned some of them may not have symptoms. I know for, uh, me that comes to mind, um, uh, you mentioned HPV, but also herpes, which is another common one. People may have been exposed to herpes and not be aware at all that they have been exposed. And if they're not getting tested, there isn't any way for them to necessarily know that they have been exposed. So talk a little bit about um, some of the, the signs and symptoms of sexually transmitted infections. Yeah, so, you know, they kind of vary depending on, you know, the pathogen. Often the the most common one is like a discharge or you know, any sort of um, odor that might be, you know, coming from your genital areas. Um, sometimes there can be um, lesions or warts or, you know, something, anything that, that does not look like your normal anatomy. And again, another sort of kind of drilling it back to, you really have to know yourself. It's important for us to know what we, you know, are dealing with, be able to explore our own bodies. And I think sometimes that's something that is, not encouraged or explicitly said, but it's extremely important for you to know what's going on with your body, what your body anatomy looks like, you know, and so you can be very attuned to when something isn't right. 
Um, and I think, you know, we've sort of seen and, and heard a lot of examples of people talking about when something isn't right for various reasons. Um, but I think that that's oftentimes because they have been, you know, very kind of acutely aware of their body and sort of what happens and different changes. And I think we hear that a lot from athletes like, oh, I was feeling this way and I knew it was this or, you know, I had experienced an embolism and I knew it felt like that or whatever. But, you know, when we're talking about sort of our, our genitals and our anatomy, just, you know, really knowing what you have, what you look like, what are some of the things that might be changing or different. Um, if it's, you know, something that wasn't itching before and now it is, or you were having a discharge and now you're, you know, you, you were experiencing a discharge for a certain amount of time. Um, the other thing too is that symptoms, if they if they come, they can come and go relatively quickly as well. And so there may be times where you, you know, were symptomatic, um, didn't really notice for whatever reason, and, and now that's gone, but that doesn't mean that the infection has resolved. Uh, and so it's just, you know, I think, again, screening is one of the biggest ways that we can really, you know, understand be, to be able to detect and also as a preventative tool, um, because oftentimes if a person is able to catch um, their own infection early enough, we really do prevent the transmission. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's difficult sometimes to say this is exactly that. Obviously, some of these are, have been the more common, um, the more common physical symptoms. Um, but again, screening, I think, is always going to be our best tool at really identifying and understanding and knowing when there is an infection and, and how we can, you know, avert it. I think it's so very helpful that you talk about knowing your body in addition to getting screened, because some people literally have no idea what their genitalia look like. Um, so uh, get that mirror out and look, lift some stuff up, open some things up and look and be aware that because all of our bodies are different. Um, and so you've only seen yours. You don't know <laughs> necessarily like, oh, OK, there's other stuff going on. Right. Um, so it's important to get that. But also when you go to see your provider, uh, shout out for that preventative kind of work, going to get those screenings, but going to get those uh, annual appointments is have conversations about um, are there any things that are, you know, sometimes you'll have um, cysts, sometimes you'll have, uh, like you said, um, lesions that'll pop up. Sometimes you'll be more prone to bacteria infections or um, um, yeast, or right? being able to understand like what what are um, some of the things that my body experiences? Uh, you mentioned growing up in the South. I know that a lot of ladies who have grown up in the South have had to deal with some different types of infections just naturally in their body because pH balances, yeah, right? Yeah, we sweat and, and a lot in the South. We, you know? we sweating. We sweat all the time. <laughs> right, right, right. And so, you know, if like, I don't know the difference between a yeast infection and when there may be something else going on um, or, or vaginal bacteriosis, like, I, you know, there, there may be some things that I may be trying to treat with over-the-counter things that aren't things that can be treated over-the-counter. So that knowing the body and understanding and being aware and being educated, I hear you saying, um, is very important. I do also, you mentioned the, if you catch it early, right? So you're able to recognize like, oh, hey, I do have, there's a lot of shame we know around being diagnosed with a sexually transmitted infection. Um, growing up, I definitely remember the fellas uh, roasting each other about you got the claps, you you um, you burning all of those things, and and it makes you feel very dirty. I think and kind of outcast and some concerns about whether or not people can love you. Um, but I also hear you saying that it is important for us one to get screened and recognize when we have infections, and also be able to have that communication with potential partners so that we can be preventative and make sure um, that we're doing everything we can not to transmit. 
uh, infections to other people. Talk a little bit about Oh, absolutely. I think one of the worst things that has happened in sexual health is that this has been some sort of, you know, ostracized, like unclean over there kind of thing. And and to be fair, that was also a tool of oppression, to be fair. Um, so you know, one of the things Speak that on I, it. I, one of the things that, you know, I, I was able to learn kind of later on, more recently in in some of my work, is that the United States actually had a, a federal law that allowed states to imprison people if they were suspected of or had confirmed sexually transmitted infections. And so this was sort of around the time of World War II when there was a lot of syphilis. Um, and this was sort of a, a, an idea that was really, again, sort of born out of white supremacy and like mm. all of the drama that we've had in the U.S., but to, to try and control the people who were considered risky. So again, what this did was it, it basically separated the people who, you know, are in our society terminally considered the unclean. So you're, you know, people who have housing, housing instability, you're people who are minorities, you're people who are just kind of considered undesirable. It was a target on them because even if they didn't have an STI, so that suspected thing would allow people, you know, in judicial situations to be able to say, oh, I think that you did this or I don't like your lifestyle or whatever else. Mm -hmm. And so we, we kind of have to, I'm always kind of the person who wants to challenge everything as far as a historical context because something came from something all the time. Um, and so it was, it was really interesting and eye-opening for me to learn that, that there was in, in, up until honestly the 1970s in some states, these laws wow. still existed mm -hmm. that said that if a person, you know, was suspected of having an STI, that they could be imprisoned for however long, they could be fined. Um, and so, you know, that kind of goes back into our loop of the the atrocities in, the, in our legal and judicial mm -hmm. system. Um, but really a lot of the stigma and shame comes from that. Um, and then we also know that, you know, as far as our um, engagement as Black communities with kind of understanding um, natural experiments and, and, and being involved in clinical trials and mm -hmm. things like that, where, you know, there's been a lot of mistrust and distrust, not only with the government, but with public health organizations. And so, again, a lot of our stigma is born out of real negative experiences um, and real kind of adverse things that have been specifically targeted towards um, people of the African diaspora in the U.S., people who are indigenous in the U.S., um, and, you know, immigrant populations. And so I think it's important to be especially attuned to that. I think we're waking up to those facts as a society now, um, just because there's been so much focus on what the historical legacies of, you know, some of the the many things that have happened to um, to Black and Indigenous people in the U.S., but but knowing really that all of that is anchored across the board. It's in mm -hmm. our sexual health. It's in our reproductive health. It's in our you know cardiovascular health. It's in our you know prison systems. It's in our education system and our you know lending practices. It's it's really steeped in everything. And so that for me, I think has been extremely eye opening and really being able to challenge some of these ideas around stigma. So sorry, that was one thing. A little bit of a soapbox. Mm -hmm. Nope, that was wonderful. Thank you so much for that information. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think the other thing too is sort of creating a, again sort of a narrative around being able to understand that we all experience illness. So it kind of again, we're in the in the pandemic still experiencing a lot of things right now. We're seeing this uptick in um in um respiratory viruses, 
upticks, you know, in COVID again. So there's all of these things. So we've kind of gone through these shifts of like masking or not masking and, you know, sneezed in my face or didn't. And so if we think about it like that, we all experience illness. Like we, we all experience some sort of engagement with infections, with pathogens. There are things in our environment, people in our environment that make us sick we're not really, you know, thinking about that any differently. If, if, you, if you really challenge it, to, to, to be fair, that those types of exposures are really no different than, you know, how we're able to move with our partnerships, how we're able to, you know, engage with one another around our sexual health. And so um, what was really cool was to be able to talk to, you know, my family members and people in my life about, you know, doing sort of contact tracing for COVID. Cause I'm like, y'all, this is what I do for like chlamydia or HIV. Like this is exactly the same thing. I call you, I ask you where you've been, who your partners are, where you, who you've been around. And to be honest on the COVID side, it was way more people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So, you know, thinking about the fact that like we all have exposures, that there's nothing that really really changes that and there's nothing that separates us from those levels of exposures and that being you know responsible and being able to have conversations about hey you know what yeah this is something that happened and I want to make sure that you have information so that you can be empowered to take care of yourself and because I'm talking to you about this I actually care about you I care about you because I'm coming to you with this information I care about you because I want you to be empowered about your health and having that conversation you know doesn't has no no um bearing on my you know quality or my character or any of those things that actually you know really should be seen as a sign of 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 grace and care and love and support because those are the types of things that you want somebody who cares about you to be able to have engagement on and to be able to have conversations so by no means am i saying that it's easy i know that we have a long way to go to really um uproot these stigmatized you know things around sexual health but really to, to see it as, as what it is. I mean, it's the same thing as catching the flu. You know what I mean? It, we all are going to be able to get treated for most things. Um, there really shouldn't be stigma and shame around it. And, and being able to have conversations are really a sign of care and love and support. I really like that piece about the COVID and the contact tracing, um, because I do think that that makes it live for people. Like, hey, we get viruses. They happen. They're going to be in your body. Right. Um, and at, at points, they'll be more active than other times. Right. You can treat most of them. Mm -hmm. um, some things don't have a cure, but they are treatable. Uh, and so I think that's a good segue into what kind of quality of life. Right. Because I know that sometimes when people come and see me, they feel like life is over. I've been diagnosed with this sexually transmitted infection, particularly the ones that are viral. Right. So the, the HPV and uh, HIV um, are the two that people, I think, really struggle a lot with contracting because, as you said, the stigma, the shame, um, a lot of just feeling ostracized, uh, the, the, there has been a lot of, um, I think, negativity around those particular viruses and what it means to contract them. So can you talk a little bit about, hey, you can have a quality of life uh, with these illnesses in the same way that you could have with um, other illnesses, too? Oh, absolutely. And again, I'm going to liken it to people who are taking daily medications for diabetes, who are taking daily medications for hypertension, who are being treated for cancers. I mean, again, it's it's no different. And, you know, we really have to move beyond this 
you know, kind of socially constructed stigma um, that is trying to just kind of create dissension, I think, within within our communities. But ultimately, there there really is not a huge impact on quality of life if you are able to get into care, if you're able to get treated, um, if you're able to maintain some of those things. I mean, we've had significant advancements in our um, in our pharmaceuticals, in technology, and so much so to the point now where people who are living with HIV don't even have to take daily medications anymore. So this is really something that is is not by no means, you know, it was a death sentence for a mm -hmm. little bit in the 80s, you know what I mean? But it's by no means is this something that has to have a significant impact on one's life, on one's quality of life, um, on their ability to, again, sort of have safe and pleasurable and free of coercion and discrimination, all of these experiences, you, you are absolutely able to live your life in the way that you want to and on your terms. Um, it requires some care and concern for yourself, so you absolutely have to be engaged um, with medical uh, provision and make sure that you are, are linked to care. Um, but ultimately, that's, again, what we're saying for anybody that has any other chronic disease, they have to regularly see a physician. And that's, you know, over half of our population at this point. So, you know, it, it is no different than any other person. I think that we are, again, really moving past and trying to move past um, a lot of the kind of stigmatizing experiences that people have had, but really understanding that, like, we're all people, we all experience health challenges. Um, at some point or another, we're all going to have to be engaged with the healthcare system and really just being able to be empowered about knowing what you need, knowing the types of experiences that you want, um, and making sure that you know what's going on in your body so you can be empowered um, to make good choices for yourself. I thank you so much for that because it, it is the normalizing, right? As you said, one of the ways we're going to get away from stigma, one of the ways we're going to be able to combat some of these social, like you said, these are constructed um, uh, dynamics. They're not anything that is inherent in the illness itself. It is that we place different values on, on illnesses and we want to normalize illness is illness, right? And so with any illness, you want to have good care. You want to have a culturally responsive provider um, and you want to make sure that, as you said, free from coercion, um, making sure that you're getting heard, making sure that you're understanding your options and being able to make the best decision and inform uh, process of your care, right? So that goes across the board, regardless of what that disease is. And so I so very much appreciate that. Um, in closing, do you have any final words, thoughts, recommendations, books, resources, websites that you'd like to share with our audience? So my, we talked a little bit about kind of, you know, the negotiation and having conversations. I There is a like recent-ish um, documentary series on Netflix called The, Pl the Principles of Pleasure. Um, and I love it because they have um, they have kind of sexual health counselors on there. They have researchers. They have um, people who kind of talk and do pleasure kind of conversations. And so they run the gamut in multiple um, episodes of talking about what's going on with your body, you know, exploring yourself, knowing what your options are, being free of coercion and violence and discrimination in your relationships, um, and really kind of knowing yourself. And so that, I think, has been a resource that I've really recommended lately, um, you know, even to some of, you know, my young people that I work with, because I think that it's, it's a gateway. It's kind of a place where you can kind of look at it 
and, and sit with it and then, you know, hopefully be able to go back to, especially for a young person, a trusted adult and kind of have some conversations and ask questions. So I think, you know, leave you with ask questions when you have opportunities for people who you trust and who you, you know, know, have experience. I love the, the kind of example you gave about your mom and your grandmother. I think being able to talk to people in your life who know you and hopefully, you know, love and support you and, and would want to put you in a position where you're, you know, able to have a, an optimal health experience. And so I think having conversations, um, seeking out resources, uh, and really just trying to find ways to, to normalize these conversations, I think is the best thing we can do. Absolutely. Give me the name of that Netflix show one more time. It's called The Principles of Pleasure. The Principles of Pleasure. I want to make sure I drop that in here. It was great. I, I thought it was fantastically done. It's one of the um, one of the really well done kind of on our not free, but but everybody <laughs> accesses them platform. Right, right. Truthfully, we all can access Netflix. <laughs> by some means by some means yes absolutely absolutely so thank you so much for sharing that um, I want to thank you Dr. Ashley Hill for coming on Tea Time with Dr. Tarver you're absolutely right it is us having these conversations that normalizes it empowers us uh, I like how you mentioned empowering types of things throughout this dialogue tonight being educated and informed, right? So that we can be able to know where to go to get that good quality of care, um, to destigmatize that health department because they are absolutely a resource for us to use. Um, and they have a lot of the things that will give us, um, or, or I'll say decrease that barrier, that financial barrier that often people have. They're trying to utilize their insurance. And we do know that there are quite a bit of health departments in counties. And so even if you don't have in a, you know, other types of healthcare facilities near you, you are likely to have a um, health department near you that you can be able to access. And sometimes there's transfer, transportation that are provided um, to health departments. So I want to thank you of giving of your time, your talents, your research, um, and the work that you're doing to advocate um, to reduce these disparities that we're experiencing. Um, and uh, also for the things that you don't even realize, just somebody seeing you and saying, oh, okay, um, here's a gatekeeper, somebody that I trust because she looks like me. And that has a huge impact too, as you mentioned, in terms of going a long way with when we have had mistrustful relationships with our providers. So thank you so much for coming to join Tea Time with Dr. Tarver to share of your wisdom. Want to let you all know that we will be um, closing out November with the cost of serving veterans and mental health. Brother Lewis York is going to come on Thursday, November the 22nd, 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to close us out in this series. Um, thank you, everyone that joined. Have a good night, Dr. Hill, and to the audience, everyone be well. <music>